Hello, listeners. This is Joel Russo, and welcome to episode six of Not My Forte. We are right in the middle of our first season, which we're calling Ian Hears the Beatles. In case this is your first time listening, this season we are following my friend Ian Zumbach on his first time ever through the Beatles catalog of music. He has somehow managed, even though he's a professional singer-songwriter, to go his entire life without ever intentionally listening to the Beatles. And when I, someone who has been extremely influenced by the Beatles, heard this, I thought this sounds like an interesting conversation that needs to happen. So we've been going through all their music in order, song by song, for five episodes, and that brings us to this moment, which I'm very much looking forward to because it's the episode that we tackle the Beatles' 1967 album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This episode, we are joined by my friend John Mays. John has been part of the Nashville music business community for a long time. He's been the vice president of A&R for several record labels over the last 30-plus years. He's currently the vice president of A&R at the record label Centricity, which is where I know John from. I was in a band on that label, and uh, John had the privilege of choosing what songs we recorded and when we released them for a few years. John is another lifetime Beatles fan, and the two of us have had a lot of conversations about them over the years, and I'm really happy that he was able to do our show. We had a wonderful conversation with him uh, that went on for so long that we are splitting this one into two parts. This first part will cover side one of Sgt. Pepper's, and next week's episode will cover side two, and also this album's very famous cover art and packaging. Follow our Facebook page, Not My Forte with Joel and Ian. And follow us on Instagram at NotMyFortePodcast to find out when each new episode is dropping and any other special announcements. Thank you for listening to me ramble on here at the beginning. Here's episode six of Not My Forte. Hey everybody, welcome to episode six. Uh, this is one of your hosts, Joel Russo, along with my buddy Ian Zumbach. Hey, hey, hey. And we are joined today by uh, a friend of mine, uh, someone that I've talked to a good amount about the Beatles uh, mm-hmm. with, and uh, he's here to talk about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band with us. It's John Mays. Say hi, John. Hi, John. And uh, <laughs> we're going to be, we're just going to jump right to. in. I had to do you that. Had, I, I appreciate your levity, John. That's why we brought you here. Yeah. Well... You're lucky. (laughs) Ian and I can get real serious. (laughs) Um, So uh, right before we hit record, John was about to tell us that he has a a unique perspective Mm -hmm. on the Beatles for one particular reason. And so I'd love for you to just tell us your context, your first context for your relationship with the Beatles. I was telling you guys that you probably will not have someone as old as me as as a guest on any of the (laughs) podcasts. I'll be... I was born in 56, so in 64, that would have been... Oh, eight. Dude, I was, was eight, eight when wow. the Ed Sullivan show sh- aired with the Beatles on it for the first time, and I saw that, me and my sisters. And it, I mean, it's safe to say that changed my life, wow. that seeing that at eight mm. years old. Wow. But the, there was a weirdness about it in that I grew up in a little Pentecostal church where you only listen to Christian music. Mm. And not even contemporary Christian music, right? So there were actually two times in the parking lot of our church where we burned Beatles records. Wow. And yeah. and other, other you know, uh, mainstream bands' records. There was a list of, uh, a list in our church lobby, and this was only about 100 people in the church, of the 10... <laughs> <laughs> the 10 ways that the communists were going to take over America without okay. firing a shot. Yeah. That was the headline. The first one was to turn the hearts of the youth against their parents through rock music. Oh, That's my amazing. goodness. Wow. And the Beatles, of course, yeah. were were the, yeah. you know, the icon of rock music. Yeah. And then, of course, when John Lennon, a couple of years later, yeah. said they were more popular than Jesus. Right before this album that we're going to talk about. Which was absolutely true. Yeah. But uh, yeah. it was it. So I'm sure he back in the USSR didn't help a couple albums later. Exactly. <laughs> so every bit of Beatles music I could listen to as uh, you know, an uh, adolescent and then growing in my teenage years, I had to sneak. Mm. So I snuck it through friends from school, 
sometimes would buy a single and have to hide it in my house, you know, so my mom wouldn't find it. So that's my weird juxtaposition of relationship with early Beatles music. At that point, you know, single, the 45 is so much smaller, so it's easier to maybe stick under your shirt or something. So maybe buying singles is more economic than buying (laughs) albums because it won't get confiscated. (laughs) Probably all I could afford anyway. (laughs) That's that's true. (laughs) You know, there has been kind of a theme through some of the podcasts too that there's conspiracies that follow the Beatles around. So good. Which is, wow. So just talking about that, what you're talking about, it's. uh, I feel like I might need to... Do a deep dive into the conspiracies that relate to the Beatles. Totally. Oh, yeah. The Paul is dead one is supreme. Yeah. But just, yeah, this religious controversy that that there were record burnings of Beatles records all over the country Yeah, uh, in the late 60s. Crazy. Wow. Yeah, and a lot of it stemming from that that comment of, of John saying that the Beatles are bigger than Jesus now. And, of course, when you listen to the, the, the soundbite, it seems yeah. so clear what he's saying, but it's a. It seems like such it's such an early example of kind of our our like media culture now, where like mm-hmm. we love to take things out of context and like throw them up on the screen, and it's like that was one of those early ones where it was like he said this one thing technically, yeah. and we're gonna run with it. <laughs> That's right. Wow. And right. then and then I should say I am I am with two people, one degree of separation from Paul McCartney. So, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. One degree. I, I know two people who have actually met him. Okay. Actually, <laughs> we. Uh, we have one degree now today too, <laughs> yeah. which actually. So we have a friend who came in uh, to do photos for for yeah. this podcast. His name is Elliot, and uh, his wife Shy uh, was a dancer that went on tour with Paul McCartney for four years. And he actually even mentioned in our conversation preceding the taping of this that uh, she had gone to the Kremlin with Paul McCartney Get. and group. What what a through line! Wow. And here we well, are talking about it. Here we are talking Amazing. about it. <laughs> I mean, I haven't figured out how many degrees I am now. I got to figure it out. Yeah. I'm sure someone I've met. Well, we'll figure that out. Later. Okay, yeah. we'll do that. The we'll do that after Abbey Road. Sure, <laughs> we'll have to have a, a miscellaneous episode. All right, so that's John. You've already heard uh, the pure gold he's going to spin for for this podcast. Just a sample of it. Um, <laughs> uh, let's start with Ian's notes. I want you to start us off. So, track number one, the title track, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah. Well, your thoughts. I, I, I think I need to pr- proceed my first takeaway by saying that yeah. it was such a breath of fresh air to hear this album after Revolver. Because mm-hmm. I think I shared with you that Revolver actually made me sad because I could yeah. feel like this band was growing apart. They weren't like as friendly as they once were on the same trajectory together creatively. Yeah. And as soon as you hear like the first minute of this song, I feel like, oh, they've like yeah. rediscovered the romance of yeah. being in a band together. It was really, really refreshing and exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was my initial takeaway. And then right in with the first verse vocals, panned hard right, kind of <laughs> setting it back, somewhat distorted. I think it's Paul just yeah. belting it. Wailing. Yeah. 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 And I was like, this is maybe my favorite vocal take of anything I've heard so far on any of the Beatles albums. Yeah. I thought that was absolutely awesome. Uh, it's probably 20 years ago now, but there's a, a video of George Martin breaking down the record at a console. Have you guys seen that? No, I don't think so. Like got the four tracks and he'll bring up different things, Wow. you know, different parts. And like, so here's drums and two guitars and a vocal on the same track, on one track. you know, because <laughs> yeah. wow. there's only four tracks. We yeah. were talking about that. But on this track, he brings up Paul's vocal and yeah, it's so special Right, he's so a hundred percent in. Yeah, and to be that age and delivering that kind of vocal. Oh my goodness, man, it's amazing. Yeah, what was he twenty seven or something? I guess maybe here, it this this is a, you can probably tell this, but this is Paul's record. You know, mm-hmm. this is his, it was his idea. The the Lonely Hearts Club Band thing was his idea, and it really feels like this first track. It's not even a song. It's like an intro. It's like a musical kind of right. bookend. And he is, he's selling it. I think he knows, he's like, I got to, this was my idea, (laughs) so this better work. And he's given it 100%. And do you know the motivation for the idea? I don't. No, that's what we're going to get into. Go ahead. Yeah, let's let's hear about it. You know, they had played, the the last time they played, well, before the rooftop concert was Candlestick Park here Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. And evidently it was so bad. Like you can't imagine them giving a bad performance, but evidently they... You know, they all their performances just they couldn't overcome the screaming. Mm-hmm. Technology had not advanced to the place where the PA systems were enough, 
and they couldn't hear each other. They played terribly, they say. And so he gets, they have a little panel van, and they get in the panel van to take them out of the stadium. And in his head, he goes, never again. I'll never do that again. And then on the plane on the way home, there's this idea, what if we just, we made records that did the touring instead of us doing the touring? Yeah. There's that motivation. And then there's, we may get to this, the whole Pet Sounds thing. Yes. Which is interesting yeah, yeah. too. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that as we go. Yeah, um, yeah the, the history, we, we have talked about kind of their gradually, you know, becoming less and less of a live band. And we talked about how actually there were no Revolver songs that they ever played live. Paperback Writer was the last song they ever introduced live. And they were they had all those writer. Yeah. They couldn't do that live. Yeah. They, it, they just didn't have the right sure. you know uh, amount of people. Enough probably. voices, yeah. And so they I remember they were I think it was probably Paul. Paul was embarrassed. He was like, We can't pull that off. And so the seed had already been kind of sown and then at, they toured a little bit after Revolver. And they didn't play any of the songs off it because of course they kind of weren't right. playable, a lot of them live. And they had this disaster that happened in Candlestick Park, and then they had they played in the Philippines, and they got run out of town on a rail. Like they had a horrible time there. Oh death, wow! Death threats constantly. Why? I think something happened with the the head of state where they didn't go and visit or pay homage to or or you know honor the 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 king or whatever it was of the Philippines at the time, and so people took great offense to that. And so that happened and then they were Didn't going that. they were going to Japan and they they received this cryptic message that says if you go to Japan your your life is in danger. So I believe they canceled that tour and that was it. And then George quit the band. Right. And he said I'm never stop I'm never doing this again and they one of the ways they kind of got him back to do this album was they're like we're not going to tour anymore. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. It's, it's yeah. really an amazing context. I mean, it's interesting because we've, I feel like through all of listening to this and reading about it this week, Revolver feels like a warm up to this because all the same themes and elements were present then. And mm-hmm. we talk about a lot of this stuff, but Sgt. Pepper's is when they're actually not touring anymore. Mm-hmm. And Sgt. Pepper's is when they're actually, they're involving all these studio technologies and really, really, really out there kind of creative things. Like it's it's all just taken to the next level. They were doing it all at Revolver, but at such a lower level. And yeah. we were saying before too, like Revolver felt like the beginning of alternative music to me as I heard mm. it. Like, mm. like it wouldn't have Radiohead or Flaming Lips or those bands without yeah without the Revolver yeah. album. But this takes it into another avant-garde, like yeah. expressive left of the dial arena oh, yeah. that is mm-hmm. just delicious, for lack of a better term. Interesting note, the crowd noise at the end of that Sgt. Pepper's intro track is from the Hollywood Bowl concert, which is a famous uh, concert album, live album they have. Uh, they just use some of the crowd noise, the, the screaming for that. That's what transitions into the next song. Which, yeah. to that point, yeah. I love the fact that they're just going into song by song. It just right. was like such yeah. a concept First time album. that had been done. Ever, mm-hmm. too, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole thing feels, I was wondering, like, in their preparation of the idea or the characters, like, was that something that aided them in stepping into a more cohesive, complementary, creative process where they're like, we're going to actually be these characters? I mean, we're the Beatles, but we're going to be these characters in the band. And they all, like, were directed in a direction that we're like, okay, let's just step into the role of these characters or... Or is that just speculative? My, the stuff I've read is that John was never into that. He, okay. didn't, he didn't care. John is not super, you can tell. I yeah. Mean, his heart is not 100% in this album. Paul is like, no, it wouldn't even be like you singing. It would be like you're, this character you've created. He would get up and sing. And John's like, right. I don't, I don't, that's stupid. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I've read about it. Um, yeah, that seems to be what happened. Yeah. It was Paul's idea. He was on this plane trip and he was like, he kind of decided that he would he had this kind of inspiration that, well, what if we were the Beatles and we hate that? We hate that we're the Beatles and mm-hmm. so people expect this of us. So what if we were a different band? What if we just at the beginning of the album said, this isn't the Beatles, this is this fic- fictitious right. group of people and then we can do whatever we want and people will kind of get it or maybe they'll get off our backs because we're not going to be wearing the suits or we're not going to be going mm-hmm. ooh or, or anything, right. you know? And so I think that's a... I think in, in some way, I mean, in this first one, it feels like he is in character, Paul is, because he's saying, he's like, 
It was 20 years ago today. Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. He's just telling the story, and at the end, he introduces the quote-unquote lead singer of the band, right. Billy Shears, <laughs> right. who is Ringo of it's all Ringo. people. Right. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. We're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Long are the days are gone of Ringo singing country songs. Now no. he's, he's getting a real good shot. He gets a shot album. here, yeah. This is, I mean, for me, this is the, this is the top of Ringo of, song, of the, yeah. This oh, is yeah. the top Ringo song. There's no, oh, it's yeah. not even close. We're talking about a little help from my friends. Yeah, right? yeah. Okay, that's a good segue. Yeah, I yeah. thought so. I had it, in it, so I've been really trying to figure out like who's singing each song. It's been like, really fun to see him. We'll be. He'll be like, I think it's John. <laughs> Surely this one wasn't hard to tell. No, no I was yeah. like, this is clearly Ringo. This yeah. has got to be Ringo. Um, and I like this version. I think I like this version better than the Joe Cocker. Yeah. Oh. Cover. Oh yeah. Which I, I didn't know that it was a Beatles song actually until I heard Amazing. it. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh wow, this is yeah. this is their song. Yeah. Um my takeaway from that was again, it was just more of like repetition of what I was already feeling as I was like experiencing the first song. I was like, oh, this is cohesive, yeah. collaborative. And then it's over. It's pretty quick. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um I love the drum tuning on this song, actually. That was one thing I Those thought toms, was so cool. Yeah. How Tuned huge low. they are. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really loved that. Um, yeah. His which, best drumming to date, for sure, is yeah. all over this record. Yeah. 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 I, I will have to say, you are prepared for this record. You've heard what they're doing. And sure enough, the first track pays off. Like, this is nothing like they've ever done before. This song, this track, like, well, that's kind of typical Beatles. Like a it sounded more, yeah. like a Ringo song for from the Beatles to me. Then it goes back to more experimental. But yeah. this is pretty straight down the middle, and I just always wondered, like, is that what they needed to do for Ringo? Yeah. It's a little, I would say, I would argue it's a little more rock and roll. It's a little more Rolling Stones than huh. maybe the, some of the stuff on their last album. Wow. Maybe. I, I don't hear that. Here, do let's listen to you need anybody? <laughs> Like his bass lines on this are very Beatles. And the bass is hot. Yes. Yes. This is the first album that he plugged directly into the mixer. Ah, uh-huh, direct. Yes. Right, right there. That's They're why so I was like, cute. wow. It feels like this is moving towards Abbey Road for me. Huh. It feels like Octopus's Garden. It feels like um, Bathroom Window. Yeah. More, more so than like Revolver. Now they now Joe Cocker changed the chorus lyrics, right? Did he? I think uh, right? he sang them really different. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if he changed them. No, because his whole version was going oh, <laughs> right, <laughs> and then the the background singers yeah. take the actual lyrics. How, how did he go, Joel? <laughs> he did. <laughs> I love this song. Oh, yeah. I do too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John, and it's been covered so much. Oh, I know. Really? Like, Cocker got all the credit for the cover, but mm-hmm. so many people have done this. Yeah, a lot of these uh, I, over the years, you see like Otis Redding, Aretha mm-hmm. Franklin, a mm-hmm. lot of these mm-hmm. big names in R and B, and and obviously just more rock people around, which makes more sense to me. But like, so many of these people were playing like yeah, Day Tripper and Yesterday and all these songs, and I'm like, man, I just I wasn't around for it. And those yeah. those their cover versions don't necessarily translate to nowadays we don't think about those we listened to Stevie Wonder's We Can Work It Out which is one of my favorite covers of all time when we were listening to Rubber Soul and uh, yeah that's that's my favorite what a full circle kind of thing too for the Beatles I'm thinking like like for that genre of music to be covering them when they started covering that for Motown artists right yeah Yeah. how cool one, one really other thing cool. before we leave this one yeah. of how what a big deal it was to say I get high with a little help. Yeah. Right. So controversial. Uh, the idea back then was that you are encouraging drug use right. among these pure kids in the yeah. United States, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, just another reason people were burning their records. And interestingly enough, this is not the song that was banned by the BBC. We'll get to that later. But All right. Okay. Um, well, one last thing about this one. Did you have another thing? Well, I was just curious one, if this was a single off of the album or was this introduced as a single? No single. I don't singles. think it was a single. I don't no. think there are any. No. The two singles, we, we're going to actually cover the, the two singles. There was the double-sided single, which is included in the next album, which is Magical Mystery Tour. So mm-hmm. we will hit those next episode. So there were no singles off of this album whatsoever? No. 
Mm-mm. Wow, never thought about that. But the songs are so popular. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah. think there are any number ones on this one. So th- we're kind of also touching on the revolution that was happening as far as the album. This album was this was the number one album in the UK for twenty three consecutive weeks. It would then become there. It would come back, but like it started with twenty three in a row. Uh, number one album in the U.S. for fifteen weeks. Wow! And like we're we're taught we're t- talking about the we're looking at as you know we're listening to in almost in real time what's happening. We're moving away from these singles and into yeah. the album. So this album, it, you, there really aren't any. I'm trying to think of that 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 Beatles one. They had all like the number one hits, right? So I'm looking at the I'm looking at the the track listing. Yeah, I don't see any. Hmm. I don't think there are any number one hits. On on this record, hmm. but the album itself was gigantic, gigantic, yeah. and that I don't think that had really happened before. I mean, if you don't mind me asking, John, like in the context you were, you were obviously around for this when it happened, mm-hmm. like what was apart from the controversy, what was the general feeling towards this album when it was released? First of all, for Beatles fans, but secondly, for like pop culture. Well, I would say. I didn't know at the time because I was so sheltered from all that Mm -hmm. because of my religious upbringing. But now looking back, it was clearly a reflection of the hippie, the love scene that was going on in that era of the 60s was also going on at a deeper level in in London especially. Mm. But I think they would even say, like, we were just trying to reflect the times and it was all this peace and love and people with you know, living in campers and driving around in Volkswagen vans. And they did capture that. When you go back and look at that time, I mean, this is such a, a beautiful reflection of it. The next song, which we're going to segue to, mm. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, so psychedelic, right? Yeah. And everybody was trying drugs. and But I was very sheltered from that time. I didn't really know that yeah. that's what was going on in the world. Sure. Wow. Wow, that's cool. This, uh, speaking of... Of acid, uh, Paul. We talked about last episode. Paul was the only one who hadn't done acid yet, and the other guys were all kind of hounding him to do so. And he finally does around just before this album. So that does two things: one, it kind of ingratiates him to John. Him yeah. and John kind of rekindle their friendship, which you can you can tell. There are a couple songs where you can tell that they're on the same page at last again. Yeah. And I think it also definitely aided uh, the the Sergeant Pepper's image with the with the the military jackets and all of the mm-hmm. psychedelic kind of stuff. And because, as we said, Paul is the one kind of driving the you know he's the one with with the steering wheel for this one. I mean, you can tell that his consciousness has been expanded in this mm. way for sure. And now he's kind of on the same page as the other guys. I do have a question about their outfits? So, okay, are those housed anywhere, like in a museum, or like they gotta be? Yeah. yeah, and can you imagine the value of those things? <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I bet John didn't value. keep his. <laughs> no, <laughs> burned it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if they're in like the the British Museum or something. Well, I know there's. I, I've I've been there and seen. They do have a lot of lyrics mm. that okay, you know, like the original handwritten lyrics in yeah. the British Museum. So they house some Beatles stuff, but I don't know yeah. about those uniforms. They yeah. got to be somewhere. Somewhere like, yeah. they got to yeah. be. Somebody should make a, like a fictional history movie about you know discovering the. It's like a national <laughs> yeah. treasure Sergeant, style yeah, movie. Exactly. Nicholas yeah. Cage has to steal. <laughs> we need to pitch this to Hollywood. You guys in on this? <laughs> okay. Okay. We're with you. All right. All Sounds right. good. So Luke, an, as long as I get an executive producer credit. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, well, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. My first takeaway was I was trying to figure out what instrument they were playing at the beginning mm-hmm. of the song. Mm. What, what is that? Do you is, know? Uh, not an easy answer to this. Okay. I think that's part harpsichord. Okay. It's definitely, it's an electric organ of some sort. And I know they're using the uh, the ADT, the automatic double tracking yes. thing. That started with the Revolver album. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do something with it to add some kind of effect. So John has brought with him this <laughs> big book. He has this incredible um, special edition uh, version of the album uh, that has this whole... Yeah. And these are broken down into, uh, like, I wish oh, everybody so cool. could see, but the the handwritten lyric here, and oh, then cool, there's yeah. uh, the story of the song, how it came to be, and then the recording details of every cool. song. All right, so what can you tell about but, uh, that? Paul is playing the Lowry organ. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, my first thing was like, oh, they're using cool 
organ sounds yeah. or something. I also felt like, as I was listening to this, oh, I'll I go, found it. The ethereal sound for the introduction was created by combining the presets, harpsichord, vibra harp, guitar, and music box. A different setting was used in the chorus. So four oh, layers of things. Wow. wow. I think yeah. this would be a good dovetail to talk about the fact that this thing is recorded on four tracks, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And, and Joel said something before we even started that we right now are recording this podcast on <laughs> three tracks. <laughs> right. The Beatles recorded yeah, this, this album on four tracks. Now, available. they did use two machines. We got to say that. Okay. So they had For, two. Not all the songs, but some of them. Right, yeah. yeah. So they in, like to do the orchestral stuff. They did have the opportunity to use a separate machine, but the using them together was so difficult that mm -hmm. they had to really concentrate on using four when they could. Yeah. Wow. So there's this phrase, you know, creativity loves constraints. I don't yeah. know if you've ever heard that. But yeah. uh, like now we have unlimited tracks and would, mm -hmm. would never come up with something like this, right? Like just the constraints of only four tracks, like did that squeeze out creativity that otherwise would have happened? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think lot now we look at like playing live, you have to figure out how to do well, some people just play all the tracks anyway, but that's a separate conversation. But like nowadays we have to think wait, you make an album, you have to figure out what you're gonna do live, how you're gonna best represent that. It feels like that, like you can only kind of bring so many people out with you, you only have so many people in yeah. your band. That's almost like the that that's my my the way that I can relate to that. Sure. Is like when we do it live, we gotta do this and like that's that constraint yeah. for me. Um, maybe for our listeners that that wouldn't understand how they were able to achieve this multi-tracking through just having four available tracks, maybe one of you guys could talk to that for a moment, just like how would they get creative in this scenario yeah. to, to be able to utilize well, so many instruments on... It's, on it's, it's creativity, but it's also courage and decisiveness because what would happen is they would have... Let's say that they were playing... Ringo's playing the drums, they would route all all of these mics into this one, you know, these different channels on their mixer, and they would route all of that to one track on or on their um, on their tape. So they're writing yeah. one of their tracks, one out of four, is just the drums. So right there, you you now cannot you can no longer mix your drums. Your drums are already You've committed. level. You've committed wow. that this is what the drums are going to sound like. If the kick's too loud, then you're going to have to retract mm -hmm. it later. You know, so yeah. it's this series of committing at every point. And like John was saying earlier, like it wasn't just that. It was then you'd have all right drums and piano. So we got to now we got to dump piano on that track as well and background vocals right <laughs> things that don't wouldn't even go together yeah. Uh, yeah and a lot of these stereo recordings you'll hear that oh there's a bunch of stuff on the left <laughs> and a bunch of stuff on the right a lot of times that's what we're dealing with that that's why this was happening is because you had all this stuff on one track and then all this stuff on the other track and so you're like oh that's weird why is the bass and the lead vocal on the right yeah it's because they were literally on the same track they couldn't separate them they were they were we call it bouncing they were bounced together on the same thread of track but that's funny because as i was listening i was thinking like oh they're they're just making interesting creative decisions to pan this vocal over to that side but you're actually right. saying no, it's because it was, it was just some of it was system. some of it like they, they they did creative stuff in that way too they, they definitely use panning in, in creative ways but yeah i think a lot especially the earlier stuff I think oh a yeah a lot of it was that a vocal on the right yeah, kind of crazy and just yeah. because they wanted to, you know. One thing I found that was really interesting uh, looking when I was researching this is that they cared, like the, the people in the band, a lot of the bands, I guess, and the producers didn't care too much for stereo mixes. For them, it was all about, they liked the mono yeah. listening experience better. And I get it because it doesn't feel, a lot of the stereo stuff doesn't feel good. It felt like a gimmick. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think George Martin was... He was quoted as saying, "Like we spent six hours on the stereo mixes for this mm -hmm. album, and we spent thirty hours on the mono mixes." Yeah, but they but no one ever he heard the mono mixes because the stereos. Well, would... but they are those are the mixes that the band signed off on. Right, were the right. mono mixes. Yes, and they might record for two days, and then they do five mixes, and the band would sign off on that. Those were mono. Then they kind of went back in and yeah. Oh, let's do stereo mixes. Yeah, I will say that for this project. Uh, Giles Martin, George's son, who's been the loving caretaker yeah. of all these remixes yeah. uh, of the Beatles catalog, went back and did a stereo mix 
and the mono mix is also in here. So you can That's great. A, B, oh, those. Cool. But the stereo mix that they did, he went back to, uh, evidently they can find, okay, so there is bass and vocals and drums on this one track. And they were able to go back when possible and get just the bass and put it now on its own track. Just the drums, put them on their own track. So they were able to do some modern technology yeah. on that old method. Yeah, especially I think White Album. I remember hearing the remix of the more the ones yeah. that were done a few years ago, and it definitely feels a lot more kind of modern. We got the bass drum at least up the middle, yes. you know, versus all all <laughs> crazy. Amazing. So, so this song. I guess the other thing I thought about as I was listening to it, I had often known this album for its being associated with uh, not just the cover art. The cover art was a big thing. It seemed like, oh, that's the album with all the people's faces on it. Right, yeah. The people get, there's some controversial characters, I guess, that are on the, the album cover. Yeah. yeah. But then also people associate it as, at least was what my dad said, oh, that's the drug album, right? But as I've been listening to it, I feel like that un, uh, it doesn't quite serve the brilliance and no, not at all. And, and quality of something that they did that's masterful. Yeah. No, they were, they were using, they were all using substances at this time during recording too. Like there's a lot of it going on. But yeah, I think it's it's a disservice to, I think, their vision, who they are to say that that's what this was, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it was definitely part of their process at this point. But like, yeah, you can't, all this stuff. I mean, especially the the studio stuff. So much of it is done, being done by these engineers and stuff. And who? Maybe they were all taking acid too. Sure. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but don't you think too, because of what you just said, there's a lot of drug credit given to this record that isn't necessary. It doesn't no. necessarily belong. Yeah. Right. For instance, this song, Lucy and the Sky with Diamonds, right. yeah. which they always swore, yeah, was a Julian child's drawing, and. Yeah. When John asked him what it was, he said, that's Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Oh. And no, I don't know that anyone will believe it, you know, because it's the drug record. Of course, right? yes. Yeah, well, so it, it just the acronym happened to yeah. line up. To that point, actually, that's what I... F so I've been trying to, like, feel these albums too, mm, right? Yeah. And so as I felt that song, I felt like this song has been hijacked by... <laughs> yeah, by like a good a word conspiracy, Where I felt like this feels like a whimsical like innocent song about a character that's sort of just imaginative. Mm -hmm. That's the way I felt about it. And I felt I felt like that was the driving point of this song to me. It was like, this should not be called the drug album. This should just be, you know, there's, there's innocence, yeah. there's imagination, there's expression, there's really cool things to experience in it. And that song particularly, I felt like just some idiot just said like, <laughs> yeah. this is all about LSD, man. I you think, know, I mean, like, I was... But it just stuck. I mean, yeah. Yeah. still to this day, everybody would say. Of course. Yeah. That's what I was raised kind of yeah. hearing and thinking. There, there was a girl named Lucy O'Donnell who is in Julian's class. And, uh, and so that doesn't seem too far-fetched. And that's who the song was supposed to be about. Yeah. And then I guess... He said to him on the ride home from school with John, and Ringo is in the car. So Ringo has uh -huh. always said that he was there when Julian showed it to John. And at the time, John was reading Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, and he was, he was like reading those books. And so that's really where the imagery from this mm -hmm. came from. He's clearly drawing from that kind of whimsical world. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I'm sure the drugs had something to do with it, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. But that's the thing. You, yeah. gotta look at th you have to look at it through that lens of like, yes – it, it affected all. It, it affected when I'm 64. Yep. It affected Sgt. Pepper. It affected every song, I'm sure. But you can't look at it one and be like, "Oh, well, if that's Strawberry Fields Forever, that wouldn't have happened if they didn't do drugs." It's like, no, that's 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 doing him a disservice. That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. And is this a, so? This is a John song. I was trying to figure yeah. it out. Oh yeah. Okay. This is yeah. as John, as John's song as I think you can yeah. get. There are a couple of those on this record, which I, which I love. Before we move on, we just have to say the power of that figure in the intro. Mm. You hear it one time through. Oh, my goodness, how yeah. gripping and compelling that little figure is. Yeah, Agreed. and the, the groove, the thing that always hits me with this song is when the chorus hits, how, how much energy is in it. Mm -hmm. Because, again, when you're used to it being this kind of psychedelic Ooh, kind of woo-woo thing. Like yeah. being so trippy and, and kind of discombobulating, especially with these kind of funky sounds. But then when it hits... Yeah. 
It's all dreamy and floaty. Tape is sped up, by the way. I was just going to ask yeah. you that. It sounded like it was. To give John that tone of voice. But just these, like, harmony, him and Paul here. Mm. It just has so much punch. Yeah. It's unfair <laughs> how great they sound together. Oh, oh no. Oh, my goodness. It's crazy. Yeah. And there's wow. some of the earlier stuff of them doing, they did so much unison. You know, yeah. they sang together. Yeah. And it's like... It, their voices are married to each Absolutely. other. Absolutely. crazy. There are some, when we were listening to the Rubber Soul, there are a couple songs that you realize it's just three of them. It's like like the, like the song The Word or mm-hmm. um, a couple of those other in the middle of that album. And, I mean, it sounds like six people. And yeah. nowadays we'd say, oh, they just double-tracked everything. But if you're listening, there's, there's only three guys. Yeah. Hey, listeners, this is future Joel once again. Uh, at this point in the conversation, we showed John the YouTube video that we referenced a few episodes ago called The Beatles Help Blackpool Night Out ABC Theater. Uh, it's by an account called HD Beatles. I would recommend watching it if you haven't. It's just them playing the song Help on a on a TV program in the UK uh, in 1965 or so. Once again, we just kind of marveled at how there are basically no overdubs on the song, and it was such a complete arrangement that they recorded and played live. Uh, so we talk about that for a minute here, and then um, dropping us back in right after we had finished watching it. Of course, they didn't. They only performed a year and a half after that, and of course, so many of those later ones, it's hard to hear. Yeah, there are no good board recordings or very yeah. few of them, but. Like that song, you're just like, it's all there. And I can't believe it. I just assume we're stacking that harmony and we're doing it at sure. least twice. And man. Did you, did you guys see the Ron Howard documentary? I did, yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't had Ian watch it yet. Yeah. Eight he days took a week. Just the touring years. And they went back and did all the magic to the audio to try to pull yeah. out what they could and did a good job on it. Yeah. So there's a lot of live recording from that documentary that yeah. is the best place to hear it. Yeah, and it's really striking. I remember I saw it when I was, it was, I forget what, it was one of these theme parks, these regional theme parks in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, yeah. when I was 12 years old. But there was a Beatles cover band that was playing there. That's one of these amphitheaters, you know. And I was really, I had been getting into them for a couple of years at that point, and I think I was just starting to play drums and guitar. And... We went, and I remember the Vox amps on stage, and I had never seen anybody play any of their songs before. And these guys, of course, had, they were all dressed exactly like them, playing all the right instruments. And it was, I I remember the song, Please Please Me, Um, and I I don't know if I remember any other songs specifically, but it was that magic of like, oh, this is, I'm so used to this coming through my speakers, (laughs) not thinking how talented they were and how tight they were. And, of course, that's why they were so good. They had spent all that time playing and trying to, like, entertain bored German people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty nuts. Well, to yeah. that point, uh, and I might be jumping ahead a little bit too much, but did any of these songs, like, that they recorded, like, on Sgt. Pepper's, did they perform those live eventually at some point in time when they came back together, or these were just studio? No. The only live songs that were ever performed by them again were the... The songs on "Let It Be." Wow, yeah, so okay. it's only and only five of them or so. Yeah, that's all that would ever happen from this point on. Interesting. They would play one concert, and it was a weird concert. <laughs> yeah, from this point on. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I guess the next track is called yeah. "Getting Better." Getting better. Uh, my takeaway from this was, um, I feel like Paul continues to be like the grounding factor in the band. Like, mm-hmm. like he's sort of. His bass lines feel reflective of that. Like, yeah. like yeah. it's just like it's just who he is. He's like doing the solid for the band mm-hmm. and like keeping it <laughs> moving yeah. forward and uh-huh. cohesive. And so, this song, um, even though everything else was ambitious and and they were exploring different things, this feels like a necessary track to me because it's not as yeah experimental actually. So it felt like. They were really good at having these commercial breaks on their albums somewhat that sort of re-engage your ears so you don't have this fatigue mm. from yeah. um, hearing all this experimental stuff, which is brilliant and beautiful and amazing, Sure, but just enough to, and I'm yeah. not sure if it was strategic or not, but but they have it, have it yeah. in there so that you're engaged in a different way. And then when they 
deliver the next experimental thing in the next song, yeah. you're engaged with that. Ian's been noticing, he's been calling the Ringo songs like the commercial breaks because they're in the <laughs> yeah. middle of the song and it's like, all right, something different. That's a great way to put Here's it. Here's Act Naturally yeah. right, and then we'll go back, yeah. you know. <laughs> but in a way, kind of how sweet that they give him a song, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Every record. Absolutely. That tells you a little bit about their community and yeah. they didn't have to do that. No. no. And and I don't think Ringo would have cared. Right? No, probably no. not. Yeah, he's just happy. <laughs> yeah. He's happy just to be there. He uh, he's happy just to dance with you. There no, you go. He, he uh, what was I gonna say? Oh, they John and Paul specifically wrote um, with a little help from my friends uh, for his vocal range. They wrote mm-hmm. it for a very limited vocal range. I thought that was kind of sweet. And he <laughs> in that George Martin documentary, he talks about singing the last note, which yeah. he has to hold for the my last friends. note. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> and how he didn't want to do it, and Paul made him. <laughs> like you can do it. You can do it, man. <laughs> great. That's great. Um, the other thing I took away from this, I really, really love that ascending harmony part that goes into the sitar part. I thought that was such a, that was like the most tasteful use of their sitar, I mm. think, through their catalog to date. Because it didn't feel like we're using the sitar to be a feature on George Harrison's exploration of of this style of, of instrumentation. It yeah. felt like a layer of something that... Is this during Could like be, the the verse? I think it's towards the maybe like a bridge part. I didn't I didn't know. Mm. They just have the, the it, it repeats twice. There's like two ascending What's harmonies. This song sounds the most to me like Paul's solo stuff. This sounds yeah. like wings to me. Mm. Like yeah, yeah. of any song maybe of the Beatles. I love Ringo's drumming on this album. Yeah, oh my too. gosh. Wow. He had just changed I think drum heads. He was doing something different with his drums, and it really shows because they're showcasing it so much. It's a really well-produced track. All the parts together work so well, stacked on top of each other. And isn't it just so Paul to write a song like, it's getting better. Everything's good. And then John says, can't get no worse. (laughs) (laughs) That's John's John's edition. That's so funny. can't get no worse. I don't hear what you're talking about yet. Right here. Over here. Oh. And then it repeats. There's a sitar. Yes, okay. I was like, man, that's a great use of that. Ugh. It felt just like a layer. Like this, like it just lent itself to bring something really interesting into that moment. Like I could just imagine, like, was it was it George? Whoever, whoever it was, were like, let me try something. Like it yeah. just felt like when I was like, let me just try something. I'm yeah, hearing something yeah, in this yeah. moment. Yeah. I just loved it. I loved it too. So maybe one of the reasons for John not being so prevalent on this track. Uh, let's see here. The session was interrupted when John felt unwell by mistake. By mistake, he had taken LSD in the studio. I thought I was taking some uppers, and then it dawned on me uh, I must have taken acid. <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly got so scared on the mic. Unaware of the reasons for John's strange behavior, George Martin escorted him to the open roof of the studio for some fresh air and left him there. Wow. That's That's what what you want to do with someone who's high on acid. Right. (laughs) Put him on a roof. (laughs) You wonder, like, was George just like, get out of here. I'm going (laughs) to stay on the roof. George Martin, legendary producer, not so great of a nurse. Right. right. Or or a shaman. (laughs) Let's say really lousy shaman. <laughs> I one of the things I kind of came across with this one was just how it was a bit autobiographical for John that that um that bridge. I think Paul does a lot of the singing on that bridge, mm-hmm. but like John it's been kind of well documented that he had an anger problem and he talked about how he he would hit women and how mm-hmm. he he and you know it says that what are the, what's the exact um uh, it's actually on here. Be, but he talked about <clears throat> he just first album ever with the lyrics yes, printed on the jacket. Right on oh, the that's back. Cool. Yeah. yeah. On that bridge you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. What does he say? Well, it's, it's all put together. There's no breaks in the lyrics. <laughs> right. There's, there's just a Is wall that, of text. Uh, I've got to admit, uh, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Ugh. Wow. What a Man, I was mean, but I was changing my scene, and I'm doing the best that I can. Like, yeah. what a real... <laughs> can you imagine someone recording that today? I know. But like there, there was a what, what, wherever I was reading about it, it was kind of paired with John later, post Beatles saying I was a mad person, and that's mm. why I, well, that's why peace was so important to me now, 
Yeah. He's like, because I was a violent person and he's like, there's no one better to talk to, to under, truly understand what the value of peace is than someone who's caused violence to other people. And I thought I was like, man, that's such a, like just, a, it's a little part of the song, but it's, it's a Paul song. But yeah. It's, it's a little bit of John. He was able to kind of put this super vulnerable it's a good point. thing in there. Uh, and I just thought that was cool. Yeah. Powerful. Hmm. Fixing a hole. Hmm. Fixing a hole. Okay, so I had uh, written as a takeaway here that I thought their use of dynamics through the overdubbing in this song mm. was maybe some of the most tasteful, brilliant, and even unorthodox on the album. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was through use of guitar guitar work and different guitar sounds. Because yeah. it's really, really exceptional. Yeah, um, Guitar sounds I haven't heard them use before, at least I don't think, um, yeah, when I, I listen through it. Um, that was really my takeaway. I was like, I love what they've done in terms of overdubbing in this and creating a dynamic sonically mm -hmm. and, and what you're feeling. Yeah. Like, it's not like we've talked about production before. It's just sometimes it's what's the feel or the vibe. It's not necessarily even what's happening technically. You're just like feeling something and it's because there's right. these moving parts that are just inferred sonically or something that's added here that just brings you into a crescendo before it drops out a little bit and draws you back in for the next verse. And I feel yeah. like this song has that a lot. Well, it's funny that you should say that. Okay. Because this song has the distinction of uh, being the only song, I think on the album, where the vocals were tracked at the same time as all the other instruments. Hmm. So they played, most of this song is completely live. George Martin plays that harpsichord, the, um, it's very iconic. Yep. Part. That's George Martin. Listen how loud this guitar hook is, the one you sang. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty loud. And the tone of it, yeah. so perfect. Jangly. And is that John playing that loud guitar part, or is that George? I'm guessing George, Yeah. because it says yeah. lead guitar on the credit. Yeah. John may have not even been in this. He might be on the roof still. <laughs> 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 Like right there, that 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 part particularly, you know, yeah. right? Just like descends down. Yeah, yeah. It's like this room. The verse just breathes back into yeah. it. Yeah, that's a great. It's a great song. It's one of these ones where I think it's surrounded by all these other things. It's it's hard to like appreciate it on its own because it is. It's this. It's a mid-level, mid-tempo yeah. thing, right? But it has such. It's it's just it's so self-contained, but there's just so much going on there. It's so well like crafted and, um, just it's tempered. And it's refined in this way that's like it's so Paul McCartney and it's so I, – I mean, and the rest of them, obviously, Ringo's stuff is great on it too. And, uh, another – we talked about this earlier, drug reference that wasn't necessarily intended, but they talk about how fixing a hole became um, getting a drug or, or injecting something, mm -hmm. which led to I need a fix. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And that that came from this song. And I don't think so. You know, right. You know? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it seems like a, too broad of a term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like that they got credited for sure. coming up with I yeah, Need a yeah. Fix. It was just yeah. record-burning fuel. <laughs> so, oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> All they needed was <laughs> the match. <laughs> RBF. <laughs> <laughs> record-burning fuel. <laughs> oh, that's, that's funny. Great. All right, she's leaving home. She's leaving home. Oh, oh man, I love this song. First of all, how yeah. is the reverb achieved on the vocals? And this? I was like, I was like, the reverb sounds oh. so beautiful and so huh. perfect. How did they achieve the reverb? I'm listening. I'm telling you, this melody. I know. Is that a ukulele or what is that thing? Harp. It's a harp. It's a harp. Oh, wow. So there's a, a, the string, only, a string orchestra. The only instrument other than the orchestra that's on this track. Playing a rhythm, really. Right. Yeah. It sounds like a, it is like a yeah. ukulele. Again, four years from Love Me Do at this point. <laughs> it's Heartbreaking, isn't it? This lyric. Yeah. This is this is another one of the shining John and Paul collaborations on right. this one. Where I think they both really showed up to this one, and they both really shine through. I agree. Mm. It's an incredible one. Amazing. So it's funny. So we have been talking about 
their influence on all different genres of music and stuff and like yeah. how you can hear like we've gone from the fact that like oh they're the original guys that did a diss track you know so you can like see how rap has been influenced by the oh, beatles yeah. or yeah. you can see how punk has been I'm influenced looking by the beatles was the, right. oh, was the... Right. <laughs> but so i found myself in this in this particular song because yeah. of a recording i just did mm -hmm. of an ep where i realized that these production features of what the producer was having me do on this thing or what he was incorporating, which is stringed instruments like cello, uh, having me sing these high falsetto parts that were used to like texture stuff, yeah. singing about heartbreak. I was like, oh my goodness, even my music has been influenced by the Beatles and yeah. I'm not even like a, a Beatles, I'm, I'm becoming a Beatles fan, yeah. but I don't have like a point of reference wow. where I'm like, uh, I can't see where the Beatles have influenced what I create and what I do, but there I it still is. corrected it was right in this <laughs> wow. song. I was yeah. like, that's amazing. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, side note from an oldster who has yeah. had two kids leave home, mm. not mm. not for this purpose, but right. just the, the way they captured the sadness of yeah. a child that you've given everything you have for and they leave. Wow. Uh, Maybe that's a unique sympathy that I can share that, you know, you guys have. Well, you yeah. said you have a 15-year-old. 15-year-old. It's coming yeah, it's up. coming up. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's yeah, don't play up. this song. I'm not going to. Yeah, no. <laughs> don't have any razor blades around. <laughs> you do. Um, so uh, this was, it was a small string orchestra arranged by this guy named Mike Leander. And George yes. Martin was offended yes. that Paul used a different arranger. Than him? Than him. And Paul said that, he said that, I think he said George didn't forgive me for a long time. Yeah. He had another session and mm -hmm. they had to get it done. So he hires this other arranger and and evidently George never liked it. Right. Like, but oh, it's come pretty on. it's pretty good though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty good. <laughs> I'm I, I, I get where George is coming from though, because I, I would probably feel the same way where I'd be like, Yeah, but what but what I could have done. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um do you want to take the story on this one, John? This is a crazy story. Do you know the story behind this? No. Oh my gosh! Well, I'm I, well. I'm so know. happy that I get to be the one who says it. Oh yeah, the newspaper article. Yes, yes. Go ahead. So there was this. It was in the. There's a story in the Daily Mirror that Paul was reading about a girl named Melanie Coe who was 17 at the time, and she had run away from home, and then she had been like found and brought back. She had run away with her boyfriend, so it was a bit of a different. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. He just used it as like broad inspiration. Uh, but that was the that was the the impetus for the song. They they were like, oh, what a sad story. She ran away from home, and then him and John wrote the song. But the crazy part is, Paul McCartney had actually met this girl. Yes, wow. Three years earlier, she he it was like a it was called Ready Steady Go. There was this TV show on a network called ITV in in the UK, and there was a dancing contest, and Paul was like the celebrity judge, mm -hmm. and he picked her as like the winner, and so she got to meet him she on had to come up. on TV. And then little did any of them know that three years later he would end up writing a song based on a on a magazine that article crazy? about her. Wow, <laughs> that is just. Did he know it? No, that's they didn't know till so like wild. A, a, well after this album came so, out. So was there like a reunion of sorts or like I don't know. Yeah. She's been interviewed a bunch of times, so I'm sure that that would have been documented. You know, if she had ever met him again, but. That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? I just love that they were looking in like articles for like inspiration for song ideas, oh, yeah. right? It wasn't, yeah. they were just looking everywhere, right? Which yeah. is a perfect segue into our next song. Yes. Yes. Uh, which could you, I don't want to screw up the title of this song because it's such a long name of the title of the song. Being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Right. Okay. Yes. Does this the start of the other side of the vinyl? Like, no. No. no You're one song it? off. Yeah. Okay. All right, I thought it might have been, but um, I can see why you might think that. Yeah, was the song prior to that, or the, it's the next, next song? It's the next song. Okay, all right. Um, so, I guess one of my takeaways from this was, you know, tra how they how they selected track selection and mm -hmm. creating an experience for the listener. I felt like this was very intentional where it's positioned in the in the album. Um, I, the creepy circus music whole part in the song, I was like, this sounds like it was done on Pro Tools. It's That, that was <laughs> yeah. amazing how they did it and uh, and how inventive and interesting. This, this to me, this song, I was like, you know what? I love the fact that they're just doing stuff. Like like I think we'd said before, that probably a lot of the stuff would not be commercially 
accepted yeah. right. Right, right now, right? I mean, Mr. Bungle could do it as an independent band, and they have created <laughs> right. a whole career sure. out of it. But like, um, but for a commercial band to take these steps and be this experimental and do these mm -hmm. types of things makes me love this era of music <laughs> so much. Like, yeah. because I don't, I, don't, I don't know all the factors that were involved in it, but they were willing to try stuff yeah, and how much great music came out of a willingness to just throw caution to the wind in some sense. Yeah. Like we love music, we appreciate the uniqueness of the artist's voice or expression, and let's just see what they do, you know. And yeah. and and this song really said that to me. Like it it, it kind of just continued to light a fire internally as like as as a as appreciator of music and yeah. curator of music. You know, that, yeah. that this is this is really um really appreciated this song yeah particularly in, in general i think most beatles fans are either a paul guy or or a john guy right yeah. like, okay. and i've always been a paul guy but as i learned more about this song and that he wrote this song from this poster using those lyrics like dang yeah i gotta respect that yeah <laughs> yeah just the and work like, that went into it right well but you could see like in a songwriting class at belmont or something somebody giving someone an assignment sure saying okay you have to write a song from these words yeah but he just saw this and oh i don't know what inspired him but like so much of the lyric is on this piece of paper so amazing hey everybody as i was editing this i realized that uh we never mentioned what this poster is so john had found this 19th century circus poster uh, that you can go find online. It's really entertaining to look at uh, that has most of the lyrics from this song on it. So that's what we're discussing and looking at. I think yes. it's the language of it too. Like I'm looking at it and I'm like, I can see what grabbed him because it's this old, it's this 19th century kind of way of talking. Grandest night of the season and positively the last but th last night but three being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, late of Wells's Circus and Mr. J. Henderson, the celebrated some set thrower. I, a summer set thrower. I don't What's know what that, that means. Um, but like it says, uh, m uh, Masters Kite and Henderson, in announcing the following entertainments, assure the public that this night's productions will be one of the most splendid ever produced in this town, having been some days in preparation. <laughs> <laughs> and like you can tell, he's, I'm, I feel like he probably started reading it in a voice. Yeah. In like a circus barker kind of voice. You know, Mr. Henderson will undertake the arduous task of throwing 21 somersets on the solid ground. <laughs> like, we need to find out what a somerset is. Is it like a, is it yeah. like a somersault? Must maybe? be. Or like yeah. a handstand? I don't know. Yeah. But like, yeah, so much of it is from here. And uh, yeah, it's kind of, he said, apparently he told George Martin, he said, I want to smell the sawdust on the floor. That's what he was Yeah, like, I read that. That is. <laughs> and wow. you kind of do. You yeah. do. What, uh, what Ringo plays. Yeah, really pulls off like the, the guy doing the symbols like this, yeah. and then the snare roll yeah. going back into the verse. Yeah, it feels like it's what a character dr a drummer would play yeah. at the carnival. You know, wow, this uh, feels like it's in in step with the opening track more than most of the other songs. Good where point. It's this yeah, kind of circus. Yeah, which is why I thought it was the second side, like first song on the uh, second yeah, side, okay. was to tie that in. So there's a sound in here. We we might listen to it that. Uh, I always thought it was some sort of organ, and nobody can see me, but these these blocks, that sound? Yeah. Bang. Okay, it's Bang. unusual, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, those are bass harmonicas. Like these oh, wow. massive, and there's actually pictures of them with these. Like they're like three feet long, but they're harmonicas, bass harmonicas. It's a real thing. And uh, wow. George is playing one. Ringo is playing one. Neil Aspinall is playing oh, wow. one, and Mal Evans. Wow. So there's four of them. Mal would play a few it. things on this record. Yeah. He was their, their yeah. tour manager, like their, their kind of, their almost assistant. He was the guy who like, he would just yeah. go get them stuff, you know. That's great. I That's wonder if so Neil, cool. though, is on a, any record anywhere. Yeah. Now, Neil, for, what was Neil? Neil was like their similar kind of thing, right? Like the road guy, Roadie, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. He would load their, lug their stuff around. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh. Like, hey, we want you to play the bass harmonica. <laughs> wow. <laughs> hey, we need a couple bodies in here. That's we right. need a couple more lungs. It must have been really easy <laughs> yeah. to play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but to that point, though, too, like when they're mixing this into a track, they had to like, 
obviously do some experimentation to make sure it was seated correctly. In of course, mix, yeah. Right? Imagine all the tries, right? Yeah, with this, and then being like, "Hold on, do it again." Yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> and at, I think it's at the end. Like, there's so many different organs in this song. Yeah, it's all this organ. Part. That part always. And I gets think it's me. at the end that they just throw all the organs in together, and it's just cacophony. A lot of sped up stuff. Yep. Now they're slowing down the main track, so it's the pitch is just going down. This song had to freak a few kids out, I'm sure. Oh man, <laughs> play, play the very or end. A few parents out. All these organs. <laughs> Incredible. I it's funny love how, it. like, yeah, I'm trying to think of what's the modern like analog to this, right? Like, what who who's doing that now? Like, so maybe like a like an Andrew Bird or mm. or Suf John Stevens or something. You know, like some of these people who are like who are experimental and, yeah. and chase these sounds now. I, what I'm, Jacob Collier is doing. Jacob Collier, yeah, 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 yeah. From from more of yeah, from a virtuistic yes. standpoint. I've said this every episode so far, pretty much. But what I've, the way I've kind of sold this journey to Ian was that the Beatles are like if NSYNC became Radiohead. <laughs> like that's that's what they, you know. Do you want to hear that story? Yeah. You know, like that. That's because that's what the story that. is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That is all for this episode. Uh, as I said at the top, we are splitting this one up into two parts. So come back for side two next week, and uh, we'll see you then.